Greetings, my name is Gershwin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 61 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 61, we are going to be talking about a slew of sort of announcements and things going on in quizzing. We've got a virtual meet coming up in PNW, uh, virtual meet number two. We'll talk about virtual quizzing uh, beyond PNW, some exciting and interesting events there. And we'll talk a little bit about the uh, kind of what's next for PNW quizzing in terms of the remainder of this year and then going into next year. And then we're, though that's sort of the announcement phase of things, but then we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about two sort of big activities or two ideas. The first is an idea that we're in the middle of kind of brainstorming. And I haven't actually talked much with Scott about this. Uh, so I'm very interested in sort of bouncing ideas off of him live in the podcast and uh, getting his thoughts on this. And that is coming up with something called a CBQZ Academy for training of officials and maybe even coaches as well. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. And then we want, also want to spend some time talking about question theory. We're sort of nearing the point where we stop thinking about our current material and start thinking ahead towards future uh, material for next year. So we're going to be talking a little bit about, you know, situation questions and theorizing some uh, good ways of handling question writing and the provision of question sets of quality. All right. So with that said, let's talk a little bit about the announcement stuff first and get that out of the way. So first off is the virtual meet number two. It is upcoming. It is actually in less than a week away. It is Friday and Saturday. April 17th and 18th. It is uh, going to generally work kind of the same as we did last time. The official kickoff time is going to be 6 p.m. on Friday, but uh, I and several other people will be hanging out in Slack probably starting around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So if anybody wants to log in a little bit early and test out their equipment or whatever, maybe even go through a couple of practice quizzes or something like that, uh, that will be great. I know there's at least one, uh, possibly more than one uh, quiz master who is... Uh, Really looking forward to the opportunity of doing a practice quiz or two before we kick things off officially at 6 p.m. And a, a really cool announcement I wanted to make about this upcoming virtual meet number two. We actually have a new church joining us, um, which is kind of weird uh, in sort of this... Uh, end of the year kind of scenario, but because this is a virtual meet, uh, nothing really counts. Uh, the board of directors said it was cool to allow a new church to come in, which is awesome. So we will be welcoming a team from Othello, Washington, central Washington area, which will be uh, both exciting and awesome to have them participate in virtual quizzing with us. And of course, uh, broadening our view beyond PNW, virtual quizzing is taking off outside of PNW. I spoke at length last week with the Pacific Northwest field director for the Nazarene Bible quizzing program, and uh, he's working both to make some sort of virtual quizzing thing happen within the Pacific Northwest uh, for Nazarene, uh, for the Nazarene program, but also he's taking this to his other field directors uh, across the country, uh, across the U.S., to uh, see about putting together some form of virtual quizzing over the next couple of months or so as we are all sort of in remaining in isolation. And of course, there are various CMA districts that are currently working on implementing some form of uh, virtual quizzing. All right, so with all that said, what is next for PNW quizzing? Well, um, I actually have no idea. Uh, so we, we sort of have some things on the horizon that might happen, but we don't know exactly how well uh, they're, or well, not how well, that's not the right way of saying it. We, we, don't, we don't have confirmation on a lot of these things. So uh, first up, in May sometime, hopefully the early part of May, but we'll see. We are hoping to put together an interdistrict virtual open invitational. So basically any teams from any district uh, may be participating. Uh, we don't have an exact date. It'll probably be a Friday, Saturday, sort of similar idea to what we've been doing with our PNW district virtual meets will probably do the same sort of idea. I'm trying to get other districts interested in this. There are some districts that are very interested, others that are much more on the fence and others that are interested, but are dealing with uh, some sort of internal logistics and um, 
sort of internal management of their district uh, uh, stuff is kind of got away from them a little bit in the short term because of all the ambiguity going on with the virus situation. So we're working on that. And um, so far, I mean, there there had been some talk about having a virtual internationals, but not really it wouldn't be real internationals. It would be called something else, but a internationally invited group of people to participate in some sort of virtual quizzing. Um, there hasn't been much headway uh, happening on that since the last podcast episode that was originally planned for early July, somewhat core, uh, coinciding with the original dates for internationals, uh, the, the actual in-person internationals. There's not much going on there so far, so we'll see how that works out maybe over the next week or two. Uh, stay tuned, and hopefully we'll have some positive updates there. But assuming it doesn't happen, or even if it does... Uh, I have been working on a lot of data projections for where the virus is and where it's going. And I'm kind of cautiously, optimistically looking at the sort of the, the lockdowns and stuff kind of stopping sometime in July. I'm thinking probably early July, but I don't really know for sure, but somewhere in that general vicinity. And so I've been unofficially floating the idea of an in-person internationals to take place in mid-August. So uh, I've, I've uh, not petitioned, I guess. I've, I've been talking to a couple of people on the CQLT and a couple of other district coordinators and so forth, just kind of floating the idea to see if it would work. Uh, the location has been something that has, uh, for CQLT folks, uh, finding a location on such short notice is a significant obstacle. And it turns out I actually have an in with a, uh, a location in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm working with them on the possibility of a mid-August thing. And they are very, very, very open to making it happen in a very big way. So it really all just kind of depends on the willingness of both the CQLT and other districts to participate and really more than anything it it mean it it it's going to depend on how the virus situation progresses say as we get closer to july um so i don't want to promise anything but that's just kind of out there uh, at the moment all right so then with that said looking forward into next season we have right now the scramble meet scheduled for september 19th of 2020 uh after the summer it uh is tentatively going to be at uh, Alliance Bible Church, ABC, uh, in Covington. It will probably end up being there. I don't know for sure how things are going. Much of next uh, season's kind of hosting situation has not been worked out yet because we were planning on working that out over the next couple of meets and, of course, haven't had a leadership meeting in quite some time uh, since, I think... Um, Oh, I guess it would have been Lighthouse uh, meet in February was the last time we had a leadership meeting. So <clears throat> stay tuned for information on what's going to happen there in terms of uh, hosts and uh, all that stuff being worked out. That said, I think last episode or the episode before that, we announced that Matthew material was available and it is. Uh, it's on cbqz.org for download and it's also in the CBQZ app and so forth. And uh, the official Matthew question set is in the works. It's being created at this point. One final announcement that I forgot to announce is that we are actually streaming the recording of episode 61 live. Uh, so for anybody that is, that is interested, you can, probably not for episode 61, because by the time you're hearing my words... It'll be via the podcast, the usual podcast publication. But for future reference, if you join us in our Slack channel uh, on the inside the channel, inside quizzing uh, in the Slack instance for uh, Bible quizzing, you'll get a link there that will join a Google Hangout and you'll be able to listen to us record the podcast live. And of course, uh, we already have a couple of folks who are listening to us live. Aiden and Dominic are currently listening to us live, which is awesome. Welcome, guys. And if you guys have questions or comments along the uh, episode, please feel free to just uh, uh, type them into the Slack channel, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, notice them and answer them as we progress. All right, so I've been talking for a little bit, and I want to pause and let uh, Scott jump in here, but I want to talk a little bit about this idea of a CBQZ Academy and, and kind of brainstorm what that would look like. 
And it was really around the idea of providing training and possibly even certification for officials in terms of like scorekeepers, answer judges, especially quiz masters, but even statisticians as well. So with with only that as your your kickoff point, Scott, what are sort of your initial thoughts around that? I think there are a lot of positives because there is a lot of training for each of those roles that is very, very standard, and it would be useful to not have to duplicate it among districts and programs and all of that. For example, I was helping train um, a local church that had they, – they grew very, very quickly, and so we're wanting to train all of the new parents who had quizzers in their program to be scorekeepers since a lot of them would be coaching for the first time. And so what I did is I came up with a fake quiz, but that would create all of the weird scenarios that you need to know for scorekeeping, like a quizzer having only one error, but it was in error points. So his team lost 10 points or their team lost 10 points, but the quizzer shouldn't lose 10 points. Or a quizzer being subbed out that is then trying to be subbed back in before three questions have elapsed. Or... Um, there's a lot of rules around subs that I guess aren't really important, but what I'm trying to say is I, I had a scenario that would test them on all the third-person bonuses, quiz outs without error, air outs, subs, uh, team points, overtime, all of that, and that could be just one one piece of training scorekeepers that everyone could utilize. Just have people go through this question-by-question question template and have them fill out, and that would be a really good start to train scorekeepers. I think you could also have some pretty good standards for training quiz masters. Answer judge is kind of a weird one because you're you're in a supporting role where it is definitely helpful to know everything that a quiz master has to know, but your responsibilities are actually a lot different because you're not managing the room and managing the quiz, and you're not asking the questions, so you're kind of a secondary check on a lot of stuff. But I think it would be useful to have standards or at least a base set that everyone can start with. Now, as far as certification, it, I think there can be some use. But for the most part, I would imagine that districts don't have enough volunteers. And even if they have too many, they're not necessarily wanting to pick only the best X number of a certain role and use them. You're often wanting to give everyone an opportunity and train everyone. And there probably is some minimum level of aptitude for like knowledge and aptitude for a given role but it's i would imagine it's fairly low for most districts and even for internationals often i i've never been involved with selecting internet um selecting officials or getting officials but i get the sense that it's not like 30 quiz masters say like hey we're all willing to quiz master it's a much smaller number and so whether or not an official is certified is not wouldn't really be a helpful metric uh, because you're not getting to pick and choose anyway. I think I think that level of certification would be useful for some because there are some officials who might have a desire to be really, really good, but the structure of a certification would help them figure out the areas that they need to improve on. Um, but I would imagine for a large number of officials, it wouldn't be particularly illuminating or motivational. Um, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. What do you think? Do you think some of the certification ideas changes if you're talking about a meet like Great West or internationals? Potentially. Um, I think you might have a lot of disagreement about what constitutes good when it comes to an official. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe a certification makes those sorts of conversations less awkward. I mean, I know that there was couple years at a meet where a district would send really, really bad scorekeepers and weren't, we weren't really sure like what was being lost in translation. Um, so it, some structure around that might be more useful rather than during the meet just going to them and saying like, hey, you're not very good at this. <laughs> Is there someone who's better? Um, like having some sort of advanced certification would be helpful for that scenario. But for the, I don't know, I feel like that doesn't, doesn't happen very often. But I think it would be helpful even just as an exercise to talk about what would be part of a certification because there might be disagreements about what makes a really good quiz master that would be helpful to have discussion around. Yeah, that that part absolutely. I think I think really it's probably more, you know, a, maybe the the SKs are more sort of a black and white kind of thing. The answer judges to me the certification is around really understanding the rule book. What I what I found 
uh, in in a lot of meets when it comes to answer judges when we're when we're in situations outside of P and W. Uh, I found answer judges actually don't know the rule book very well. There's sort of this this less a situation around knowing something that is wrong that the rule book says, but rather there's a very common thing of people believing certain things are rules that are actually not in the rule book. And that's part that part's very interesting. So like if you end up, you know, misinterpreting a rule or you overhear something and you think, you know, a, a rule that says X in the rule book is actually Y, it's fairly easy to sort of become self-aware of that by just getting into the habit of of routinely rereading the rule book and you'll encounter X and you'll say like, Oh, okay. I thought it was Y clearly I'm wrong. And that'll become obvious to you. And it's easy to sort of understand that straight away. But what ends up happening is what if the rule book is completely silent on the, an, an idea of Z and you believe Z to be true, right? Going and rereading the rule book is it's, it's very difficult to approach the rule book a rereading of the rule book with a blank slate as a uh, for your mind, right? You usually sort of enter in with sort of this baggage of here's what I believe. And unless the rule book explicitly says Z is not a thing, right? It's very easy to think of Z as actually a thing. And I've, I've had conversations with, uh, you know, uh, what folks in Bible quizzing internationally who are, you know, have been in for years and years and years, if not decades. And I've, I've, I've had conversations with them where they will say, oh, well, you know, Z and I will say, well, but Z is not in the rule book. And they'll say, well, yes, it is. And I say, okay, show me. And they'll thumb through the rule book and then they'll realize like, oh, I guess it's not there. Right. I thought it really was. Right. And that's an innocent mistake. Right. They, they, they're thinking it was, but unless you're kind of going through every single thing that you remember, it's very easy to sort of like carry that in. So part of it is, is kind of like, I think I've, I've encountered answer judges who actually don't know the rule book particularly well. And I think a, a certification would be more like you've, you can't get to a hundred percent, but, but there's a pretty good idea that at least they they've got a 90%, you know, or better comprehension of the rule book kind of thing for quiz masters. I think it's much more practical skills that, I mean, they certainly need the, the, to know the rule book as well as the answer judges do, but it's more along the lines of like a, almost like a practicum of how do you speak and how do you enunciate and how do you stop yourself short? How do you, uh, how do you call on a quizzer? You know, this sort of room dynamic mechanics and stuff that I think would be valuable. And so then it's one of those things of like, well, does a district, you know, favor people who have certification again, you're right. Probably not because you want to provide everyone with the opportunity of being able to, uh, have the experience of quiz mastering or, or answer judging or whatever it happens to be. But then if somebody express, if somebody's in a district who expresses interest in quiz mastering, sort of my first thought would be like, oh yeah, go and get certified. Um, th and that's, that's your sort of, um, your training. I'm, I'm, I'm not thinking of something that takes, you know, months and months of time, but probably like a day or two or something. Right. Sure. I mean, I, I do think that if it would be helpful to come up with, you know, 40 questions on the rule book that are more or less objective that you could see like, Oh, someone got 38 of these versus 15. Um, on one well, hand, I don't think, well, go ahead. Well, no, no, you go first. On one hand, I don't think that different levels of knowledge of the rule book has a super big impact because you, especially for the important meets, you will have an answer judge and you'll have a quiz master and you have every captain who, Really, it only takes one of them to know what's correct to at least make sure that that happens. On the flip side, I think that it can it's really beneficial for a quiz master to be very well-versed in the rules because then you can make rulings confidently, correctly, and quickly because deliberating for a long time on a ruling, like a very long time, like more than 30 seconds, or making a ruling, a, a poor ruling that needs to be challenged and or protested, those things all kill the flow of a quiz and are detrimental for everybody. And so on that hand, I think it's helpful to be really, really, really comfortable with the rules so that you can be rule quickly, confidently, and consistently. But on the other side, even if you don't, I think it gets caught so that there's not like, oh, these massive errors due to official negligence that cannot be rectified, you know? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Although, you know, in terms of answer judging, right, an answer judge at internationals is the ultimate authority for the ruling in a room, right? 
They are, and, and like we've gone around on this because to me, the relationship between the quizmaster and the answer judge should be amicable, not confrontational. And so, like, no one should be wielding authority as like a weapon. You should have a conversation, and like, if it's actually a subjective matter, well, that you cannot come to an agreement on, well, sure, in that scenario, the answer judge has authority. But if there's a case where you're the quizmaster and you think the answer judge is flat out wrong, I would make it very difficult for them to proceed with something that I thought was objectively incorrect, right? Yeah, sure. Right. Well, I mean, and that's part of the part of the struggle there is like if you move from, say, you know, a district level where everybody does thing does things a particular way and you move to a different level or a different sort of um, universe. Right. So if you go from, say, districts to internationals and you have an answer judge who, you know, at internationals, the rules are a little bit different. And that, let's say an answer judge is interpreting a, something a particular way and you're like, you're the quiz master and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not right, but I can't point to anything in the rule book that, that directly counters them. And they're telling me that somebody in authority at international said, this is the way they should interpret it. Um, so, I mean, as, as a quiz master at that point, you kind of have to shrug and kind of go along with what the answer judge is saying, right? I get, well, okay. If it's the difference of interpretation then I would be more willing to see a ruling. But if my answer judge is telling me that someone like in authority international said that this is how it's going to be, but I didn't hear it, then I don't, I don't care about that. Hmm. Like if I'm a quiz master, I need to be told that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, in terms like, of, there, there was a time in internationals when I was, I was quiz mastering and then a ruling was relayed to me from some other room. And I have no idea who the officials were, but I was like, Oh, that was an incorrect ruling. Hmm. And my answer judge kind of like chided me and was like, I don't know if we should be just outright criticizing other officials to like, you know, competitors and coaches. And I was like, you know what? I don't really care. Like if I think it was wrong, then I'm going to say it was wrong. And I definitely said, if this situation happened as you have described it to me, because I was hearing it secondhand, then right. I think that's flat out, flat out wrong and not defensible. And I would not have been that strong if it was, like a subjective type thing, you know, I'm in that case, I would have said, Hey, I think I have a different opinion or judgment about how that should have been ruled, but it's not a black and white thing. So, so I don't know. I just I, thought that was interesting that my answer judge thought that even on something black and white, there should be some sort of solidarity among officials, which is weird to me. Yeah. I'm definitely not. I, I definitely don't agree with the solidarity among officials thing. I mean, I think it's more important to be accurate um, than it is to have solidarity. Um, but maybe this kind of leads into my second question here. What are kind of the minimum qualifications of a quiz master, right? Um, what are things that we would want them to possess? I mean, certainly there are objective things that we could, we could talk about, but what are some of the subjective things, right? So owning the room, right? Controlling the flow of a room is really important, but that's somewhat subjective, right? The idea of saying that you want a philosophy of one or a principle of one of focusing on, you know, accuracy over say uniformity with other quiz masters. Right. Um, that's another principle. Uh, so what are, what are some principles do you think that, that are important for quiz masters? I do think that one of the most important things for a quiz master is command of the room. Cause you're the one that keeps things moving. You set the mood, um, all of that, you know, things like you might have an, an awful, awful challenge, but I don't think, the quiz master should give any indication that they think it's an awful challenge. They should treat it like a great challenge, but then overrule it and give an explanation, right? Um, so I think that that is definitely something that comes through experience. It is helpful to be told as a quiz master, like, you are the authority. You get to set the tone. You get to um, keep a quiz moving. Um, you know, you're running this. But I think beyond that, how a quiz master reads is almost of utmost importance. Um, there were years internationals where quizmaster didn't read very well and so there was one quizmaster who read by far better than any of the others and did not have a very strong command of the rule book but i think was absolutely the best quizmaster there because of the consistent way that they read and so i think a lot of work and um, observation and critique from other officials is really beneficial for a quizmaster to make sure that all of your reading is loud enough is articulate enough your timing is conversational, so not reading artificially fast to get more information out, which is what a non-trivial amount of quizmasters do. 
um, and then making sure that your stopping ability is consistent. So my stopping ability is either average or slower than average, but I work really, really hard to make sure that it's consistent because that's the only thing that I can control. If I try to make my stopping speed quicker, the only way I can do so is through anticipation, which leads to inconsistent stopping speeds, which is worse than slow. Um, and so I think the technical reading should be worked on by a quiz master and can be pretty easily critiqued by other people. Yeah, totally agree. Do you think there's anything similar to that for like scorekeepers or statisticians? I mean, maybe, I mean, those, uh, both of those rules are much more objective, right? Yes. And so for a scorekeeper, I think, I mean, my feedback, because I'm a statistician, so I'm just, I'm looking at scorekeepers work all the time. And my feedback is always so, so similar. It's, do you know how to award team points, right, to second and third in the case of ties, or if scores are below the 150-10 threshold, right? Um, those are th things that are common, not commonly, the most often missed. Um, or a quizzer getting question 17 wrong, which is negative for the team, but not negative for the individual. That That's also um, relatively often, and just generally not writing legibly or not indicating that something is a bonus or writing 30 instead of um, indicating what kind of bonus it was. Or like Those are all very objective nuts and bolts um, that I think it's it's really easy to look over and a scorekeeper should have to be told like once to fix something. Um, or maybe once then a, a long time from the first time, you know? So right. I think that that, I think that the, the bar can be pretty low for a scorekeeper. I think the bar is probably higher for a statistician because you're just dealing with so many details and this is going to be a little bit in the weeds, but I guess that's why we're here. But we record like for prelims, everyone has six quizzes. So I'm just recording all of a team's or an individual scores on a single row horizontally, right? And so it's hard for me to know, like, oh, in this quizzer's second quiz, I gave them a 70, but I don't know from looking at it what quiz that was. And so it's hard for me to do checks because I have to go back and say, like, oh, quizzers on this team, what was their second quiz? And then cross-reference it that way to check my work as opposed to say every single row is a quizzer a quiz or quiz that has the score and the quiz identifier. And then the aggregation happens elsewhere. Um, that would probably be software based and who knows, you might have it on the CBQZ roadmap, but there's definitely a lot that I have to keep straight. And if um, I get down to it and I'm recording a team's sixth and final prelim, but I have two open spots for them. Now I have to go all the way back and figure out, like, what did I miss? Where did I miss it? Did I miss it for any other teams as well? And that's a lot of work. Whereas if it was on a – if each row was a team quiz or a quiz or quiz, then I could just go and say, like, oh, what's missing? Um, but on the lining them up on a row, I don't have that identifier, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. So – do you think there could be some kind of academy training and, I don't know, certifications of bad, maybe not exactly the right word for it, but it, do you think there could be some training and what would that training look like for coaches? Coaches. Um, I think there definitely could be, and it would be split out for sure into modules or courses, right? Because there's the nuts and bolts of coaching a team at a meet and like what strategy and... If I have a sub, how do I handle it? And things like that, right? Timeouts, the the real nuts and bolts of the competition of quizzing. But that's a relatively small part of it, right? If you're the coach of a team between meets, you have some level of involvement coaching them and making sure that they are hitting their goals or staying on track or um, whatever responsibilities that you want to take on in that capacity. And then there's the whole chaperone side of it at a meet, you know, making sure a kid doesn't get lost or making sure that they get more than 35 minutes of sleep during the night and have more to eat than 64 ounces of Dr. Pepper the next day, you know, like those kinds of just management. Um, so those are to me really, really different things. And maybe some lend themselves to either a certification or a checklist or something more than others. Um, and even the competition side of quizzing has a lot of really, contextual things there's there's really not a ton of absolutes so 
That's a bit harder, but I can see what, like, there definitely should be something because otherwise coaching just feels like, oh, this really big thing. But I think new coaches might assume that experienced coaches have all of this knowledge. And I'm not sure that there is quite that gulf that a brand new coach might expect. Yeah, I think the biggest thing about coaches, I mean, there there is the strategy component of coaching, which can be daunting to a new coach. And so getting some advice there can be useful. But in a lot of ways, some of the best coaches are extremely gifted at understanding how to motivate and and direct their their quizzers, right? And you're not you're not doing very much, right? Like like in a specific quiz per se, right? So like in a like compare football, you know, the coaches off to the side, you know, especially like the offensive offensive coordinator or something is calling plays and like ordering players on and off and and making decisions like constantly throughout you know each play of a particular uh, game they're they're constantly heavily involved a coach in quizzing like you're involved but between questions say one two three and four if there aren't any timeouts or challenges or anything like that you're not really doing very much right it, it seems like you're much more sort of passive there and then occasionally when something comes up you're 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 very very active in that particular moment but the thing that I think matters so much more than that as a coach is actually what happens sort of between the games, in a sense. Like, how do you encourage quizzers to memorize? How do you encourage them to have a good attitude? How do you encourage them to be respectful of everybody and each other and themselves? How do you foster a uh, sort of a positive collaborative environment in your team and your practices that then carries on into the meet. How do you prepare your quizzers to handle defeat, right? How do you, how do you encourage them? How do you work with them so that when they get a question wrong, they can blow it off, sit out one question, come back in and be at a hundred percent the, when they're back in, right? Those are, those are much harder and they're, they're very, I don't know, objective's not the right word. I wouldn't say that they're subjective. They're objective, but different for every quizzer in every situation, in every room, with every team, right? So, like, like what's mm-hmm. going to work with some quizzers is not going to work with another, you know, quizzer with another team in another situation. And so being able to navigate that is, um, I can see how that could seem very overwhelming. Yeah, so... To back up your points, the years that I coached internationals, I I feel like I didn't have have to help the team much with the competition side of it and actual quizzing and, oh, we need a third-person bonus and here's who can get it. Um, I feel like I called way fewer timeouts than most coaches. I'm pretty sure that even the ones that I called weren't super necessary. Like my captains could always take care of stuff like that. I think your main role is managing like expectations and attitudes and emotions quiz to quiz. Um, And then at the district level, as you said, it's, it's kind of objective because you're just, how do I motivate? But it's very, very different quizzer to quizzer and context to context. And that's why like I've seen program leaders that they do all kinds of different things. And that's an attempt to find something that motivates each specific quizzer, right? Because you're not going to – it's not a science. You don't know what it is in advance. But I heard of one district for their internationals team, right? So this is a group that you think should be more motivated than anyone else in the district. And that might have been the case already. But they would give them fake money for, like, studying and performing at practices that then they could buy stuff with. Like exactly the the model of Awana, giving out Awana bucks and then having an Awana store where you can buy stuff. Like this was done with high schoolers. And it just shows that what's going to motivate is going to be different. (laughs) And it just takes a lot of different attempts to find out what works for the specific set of people that you have. Interesting. How Do you know how well the the quizzer bucks thing worked? Um, It is a district that we know, and I think it worked tremendously well. And Hmm. yeah. Interesting. That's that's an idea. I honestly, I don't think I've ever heard. Hmm. Yeah, because because to me, I was like, these are international quizzers. Either they're super motivated or they're less than that. But I don't know what I'm gonna do to change that. Which is a very frustrating realization as a coach that there's not a whole lot you can do to move that motivational <laughs> needle. Like I think, especially actually at the international level, there might be very little that you can do. Um, I had methods that I would I would try, but 
you just want to do it for them, which is not not the point of anything, right? That's kind of right. being being a teacher or a coach or a parent or anything. You can't do it for them. Right. All right. Well, any other final thoughts on the academy? No, I think I think it would work better for some roles than others, but for all of them, I think it would have some amount of usefulness and you're going to get the most information about the usefulness when you do it or start doing it. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it'll be interesting. All right, well, let's move on to some question theory. Um, we've got situation questions coming up for next year, and we wanted to talk about or some or theorize some ways that uh, great question sets could be provided. So, Scott, what are your kind of thoughts here? So first on situation questions, they are my least favorite, and probably that's exacerbated since I stopped quizzing, because when it comes to writing questions or ruling on quest- on situation questions, they are the most... They leave the most room for interpretation, and I think it is always useful to just talk a lot about situation questions. We're not going to do that now, but um, it is useful to talk a lot about what makes great ones versus just merely valid ones, because I think everyone is probably writing questions that are valid, um, but there are definitely ways to write them that are better or less better. But... In this day and age of software, often software is a forcing function of sorts, and I think um, we are at least finding within PNW and using CBQZ that we want to settle on a really good format for writing situation questions because the easiest way is you have a, a book, a chapter, and a verse, and a question type, and a question and a answer. But situation questions are weird in that they have the questions that you're asking for, and then the quotation. So like two really distinct parts of the question that, whether you're using Excel or CBQZ, just have to be smashed into one thing uh, somehow. And we're working on ways um, with symbols and things like that to show like what is something easily verifiable as the text, because CBQZ has a really cool thing called auto text, which is flawless and works simply simple on interrogatives, where it's just text right from the material and see because you can say like, yep, that is exactly as it is in the material or I can't find that, which is a question writer's clue to say like, did I type something wrong or switch around words or something like that? Uh, But on situation questions, it's harder because you have all of the who said it to whom and how that are not in the text. So we're working on um, a formatting standard for that. And standards are notoriously difficult because everyone can try to develop their own standard, but then you just have more than one standard and the purpose is kind of defeated. But regardless of how districts write their own questions, if we all use the same standard, then it's very easily shareable. And I know that some districts have shared question sets in the past, and um, I imagine the PNW would be happy to do the same. And things like um, marks denoting jump points or the point of keyness are definitely problematic when sharing question sets between between districts. And that kind of does lead into the next one, which is ways to provide great, great question sets. If people are using uh, similar formatting, then it makes it very, very, very easy to um, share question sets. There were years that PNW hosted Great West, and I was provided the question sets from the other two districts, and I would merge all three question sets together. And that was a good amount of work to make sure that they're all in the same format and then to get rid of all duplicates or near duplicates probably was 10 hours of work. And if the formatting had been the same, that might've been two hours of work or 80% less. So I think that would be really good and software will continue to help with that where, for example, doesn't CBQZ have the ability to export a question set with the jump marks included, right, Griffin? Yeah, it does. So... As much as possible, if we can just write questions in just plain format, so maybe not even including the according to John chapter 1, verse 1, um, all that stuff can be added easily programmatically after the fact. But if you just have raw question uh, and answer, it makes it really, really easy to share between districts. Should I keep going on our bullets or you want to jump in? Well, let me jump in on one thing. I'll say... I have a slight, I, I agree with a slight twist at the end with what you said. So I, I think like, absolutely. I think having a uniform standard is way better than not for all the reasons that you said and, and being able to merge sets, being able to deduplicate is a huge, you know, uh, thing. 
Um, I think we can do that with auto text because essentially with auto text, what will end up happening is if your question passes auto text, it is known to be canonical. Now, granted, it is known to be canonical the way auto text has been programmed to believe this is canonical, right? So it really all comes down to Griffin's particular interpretation of what constitutes a proper formatting for, say, a reference question versus a, say, standard question or whatever. Um, but whatever that formatting happens to be, it's sort of like it is it is always like all reference questions are always a very, very specific way and formatted exactly in that particular way. F situation questions to date have been sort of the I don't know, the big black eye of 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 auto text because auto text i i just could not figure out a good way of making making uh situation questions work and uh i also am not a big fan of situation questions i know there are others who love situation questions it's some of their their favorite types um for me i've just always i've i've really never been able to get my hands around liking them uh, for their, for their value. And, and I think they're the quality of the questions, the, the difficulty of the questions is very variant, um, which I don't know, that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing, but it's always kind of bugged me that I, I, I've never been able to really get my hand around it. But in terms of CBQZ auto text situation questions, because of the stuff you were talking about have they, they, there is no good way of writing them to date so far, although we are working on, on a one good, correct way. If, a if, a, if a, if a question, if a situation question can go through auto text and pass, right, then any other question that any other situation question that goes through that is the same question will render as exactly the same text, which means deduplication should be programmatically trivial. Like I, we could literally write a, a, a put a button in CBQZ that just says deduplicate this question set and it would just happen. Um, the exceptions to that are where questions uh, like they're very nearly the same, but not quite. So like an interrogative where it starts with an in the beginning and it starts with the, as opposed to in or something and vice versa. Like there's one word added where they are technically different, but they are practically the same question. That's, uh, that's really hard to do other than just eyeballing it. Yeah. And so when I, ever, when I had question sets, I could definitely say like, show me the questions where the first 20 characters, the last 20 characters are the same. And then eyeball those and say, like, are these similar enough that I want to just keep one of them and make a decision? But that work does have to be very, very manual. Yeah. Well, what are some ways, what are other ways of being able to provide great free question sets? What are kind of your your thoughts around how to do I mean, obviously, with, with programs like CBQZ and other programs like that, it makes the job easier, but it still requires uh, people to collaborate and to, you know, share questions and work together and that sort of stuff. So what are, do you have any other thoughts on that? Not really. I, I just think if the formats are roughly similar, that it makes sharing easier um, because you don't have to agree on other stuff then, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's true. But like, like, let's take it a step further, right? How do you provide a great question set, right? Is a question set filled with great questions. How do you ensure great questions are written? And how do you get less good questions to be uh, filtered out of a, of a great question set, right? So it's a question of saying, who, who are the question writers? How do you vet those question writers? How do you get people to check each other's work? Um, I mean, how do, how do you manage something like that, do you think? Well, obviously having more editors is better than having less editors. So I think it does come down to the tooling. I think something like CBQZ does make it really, really easy to go in and leave a comment on a question that maybe is valid, but you're not sure that it's very good. Um, and that that definitely happens in PNW. Like we'll say, you know, so-and-so doesn't like this question. And then later there's a discussion about it. Um, but really, I think the tooling that makes that have less friction is going to result in better question sets. Because if I just throw like a big Excel document at someone who hasn't edited questions before, they might not know the best way to go about it. Um, but I think within CBQZ, you can easily say, look at this type in this chapter and don't delete or fix anything, but leave comments. Um, and it, lends itself well to that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, it's just going to be the most, the most number of people looking at the most 
questions is going to result in the best question set because then one style is not going to shine through. If someone doesn't have a certain bit of knowledge, it's going to get caught by someone else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's also something to be said for essentially play testing, right? Like practically testing a, a question set where you've got multiple quiz masters or coaches for that matter, asking questions from the question set to quizzers in a real environment where, you know, it's something, it's almost like reading your own writing versus having an editor read it. Uh, having quiz masters actually use the question set ultimately provides like, like with CBQZ, we have this feedback loop where in the middle of a quiz, if I see a question that I'm like, Ooh, that's weird. I don't like it. I'll click mark for edit. And I know, okay, great. We can come back to that later, you know, kind of stuff. Um, paper, it, it's a lot harder. I can put a little notation on it. Uh, and then I, I have to kind of hold that paper separate and then hand it back into whoever's running the meet later and say like, okay, let's talk about this question. But then it's sort of like, how does that ultimately get back to the source material, uh, in whatever database it happens to be in or Excel document or something like that. And then how do we ensure that there's a collaborative discussion around it? You know, that kind of stuff. It's, it, it's, and a lot of the times getting that feedback loop started immediately from inside the quiz means that there's, oh, I can, I can sort of mark it and forget it. Uh, and I won't forget. I, I, I have the opportunity to forget that I marked it. Uh, and, and yet it'll still be resolved or at least be discussed, uh, at, at some future date. Yeah. The years that PNW hosted, um, Great West and provided the questions, there was an awesome, uh, answer judge from another district. And at the end of the night, each night they would show up to me with just a stack of the paper questions and say like, here are the ones I marked. And I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Cause then I would go figure out why they're marked and fix them. Um, and that kind of, that kind of feedback is, you can't, you know, you can't beat it. Yeah. Yeah. Feedback is really great. All right. Well, um, should we talk a little bit about the multiple answer positive and negative rule? Sure. So it's not a surprise that it is very unpopular because it's, as you say, Griffin, quizzing is um, really based on the verbatim text, and this is dealing with a lot of interpretation into what's positive and what's negative. Um, and just got another example tonight. So, like, there are lots of times where this rule is helpful if it were purely a guideline to question writers, right? Like, if there's a phrase, he is not good, and you're writing a reference question, well, it's definitely more clear to write he is not what than to write he is what. Um, and I think that that would be an awesome guideline and something that question writers should try to do when it's that simple to write a better question where the not is part of the question. It makes it a lot clearer. But, for example, in Matthew, um, there's a qu multiple answer. What will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished? And the answer is not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. And you just can't write that question anymore. Um, it has been deemed illegal. And there's no other way to write that um, in a legal way. And it's just unfortunate because it's a clear question. And that is, the, I mean, this is interesting because the, the rule on multiple answers says um, an answer with a positive and a negative answer is invalid. In this case, they are both negative, but it is still caught by the part of the rule book that says um, if the question is not answered, um, the question is invalid. And it's just, it's a really bizarre, narrow way to write it. Um, not narrow, narrow-minded, I guess. Because it, it, it ends up being applied really, really vaguely um, because we're left to decide what does it mean if a question is not answered. Because there are negative statements like not that are clearly the question is not being answered. But then there are statements like the word unless, which can be very easily argued, um, fit this criteria, but maybe um, less obvious. And there's just lots of problems. And I, yeah. I didn't think that this was ever unclear to begin with. Um, maybe, maybe all of us within PNW are out of touch, but I've just heard universal complaints as to like, why can't we write these questions and why is this deemed to be invalid when it makes perfect sense to everybody? Yeah, I do think we are living a little bit in an echo chamber of PNW, but that doesn't necessarily mean the echo chamber is wrong. So true. It also doesn't necessarily mean that it's right, but um, yeah, yeah, true. Um, this is just a weird one that I think. If there are other districts that feel similarly, there's no reason that rules like this can't be revisited. That's the point of a, a living rule book. If we deem something to not be 
well, not, not to not be useful, but if we deem something to be better a different way, then it can and should be changed. And things have been changed all over the place, all over time, and can still be. I feel like I'm being very inarticulate, but this is just, I think when rule books write really, really, um, it's hard to write a general rule, but for a specific situation, because then people that did not know about that specific situation have to have to apply this rule a lot of places. Um, I think another one is the one word um, cannot count a quizzer out of context, um, which is now, which was written specifically when unique words became required. And it was written so that um, in this new day and age, when we're placing extra emphasis on unique words, we don't want a quizzer saying a unique word out of context to automatically count them incorrect because there are a portion of unique words that are not super meaningful. And so like it was written for that specific case, but instead of being written into the rule book, like this is why we wrote this and this is the sp- situation that it should be applied to. It's just in there like one word can't take a quizzer out of context. And so we have the case where two finish the verse questions start with the same first four words, but the fifth is different. So a quizzer starts by saying the first five words of the incorrect verse, but then corrects to the correct verse and seemingly cannot be ruled incorrect because one word can't take them out of context, which is a um, an application that was never intended, but based on the way that the rule book is written may may be a correct application. In that situation, I definitely would argue that the quizzer was incorrect, not that they were out of context. Um, but um, yeah, so I think whenever you want to rule or write a rule for one specific situation, it's a good time to pause. Because I remember a quote which was, unique cases make bad law. Um, and I think your best options are either to just say that this is such a rare case, we don't need to write a rule into the rulebook for it, or write the rule into the rule book with incredibly specific wording for that situation that you intend it to be applied to. Yep, totally agreed. I think that's all of our bullets, right? I think so. Well, so uh, I will end up closing us here by reminding everybody that, of course, we very much like to hear from our listeners. And so if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback on anything, we love getting feedback, uh, both on questions and also on the podcast. We would uh, love to hear from you. So please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And if you have a particularly interesting question or particularly uh, interesting bit of feedback, we will probably read it on the air in a future episode. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at InsideQuizzing. And with that said, I will wish you all a wonderful next few days. And PNW folks, I will see you uh, virtually in, on Friday. And uh, thank you, Scott. Thanks, Griffin. And happy studying, everybody.